Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Story. We're joined again by my old boss and uh, one of the key players in the Canadian Conservative movement, Michael Binion of the Modern Miracle Network, among many of the other things that he does. Michael, welcome back to the show. Oh, happy to be here, David. Um, we're here to talk about probably the most important topic in Alberta right now, and I would argue the most top important topic in Canada, though probably a lot of Canadians would disagree. Uh, what's going on in Alberta, and why does there appear to be a front-runner candidate in the UCP leadership race who's proposing a sovereignty act more importantly, what do you think Alberta's path to a fair deal is, if there is a path? And what's your take on the leadership race? We have lots to talk about. Yep. No, that's all. It's all interesting stuff and lots, lots, lots of lots of lots of minds to step on in there. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> so what do you what do you think? What do you think is happening in Alberta? Are people waking up to like what, what's your read on? Yeah, we've had Derek on. We've had yeah. Dennis Modry on. So, so I would just on a big picture level, uh, you know, demographics, right? Um, I think that we need to realize that there's been a lot of you know, over 20, 30 years. There's been a big influx of people into Alberta, drawn here by, uh, you know, drawn in here by opportunity, drawn drawn to Alberta for uh, you know a lot of reasons: <clears throat> lower cost of living, lower taxes, but, you know, more jobs, higher paying jobs. All of these things bring people here. Uh, but a lot of the people that are coming come from you know somewhere else in the country. They bring a lot of their culture with them. I mean, that's all immigration has the benefit of that people bring you know new ideas and new cultures with them, and that always blends in. But we should realize that in that demographics, it's created, it's created a lot a, a strong a demographic that's in favor of you know NDP type policies, and 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 we should understand they joined they joined a long tradition. We forget about this in Alberta a lot, but Prairie Socialism or the CCF, you know, it started in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and so th- this demographic means that. That you know, Rachel Notley and the NDP have a strong natural constituency. That I think a lot of us who grew up in Alberta with the Alberta advantage and the you know the diff, you know the the you know I guess a little bit of Alberta exceptionalism or or you know the the strong different entrepreneurial culture of Alberta. I mean, even even Prairie Socialists are cash and carry people, yes. <clears throat> right? Yes, so, yes, so yes. We even have a different kind of socialist, right? Um, but you know, I think those those are maybe not quite as aware how strong this group of people are. And I'll just give you example: people that came here to work in nursing or or policing or firefighting or any of these any of these public service jobs. You, you none of them ever got you got immersed in the farming culture or the oil and gas culture. So they're 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 not necessarily understanding you know the Alberta advantage of the Alberta way of life the way I would who grew up in it. And so I think that's one big picture thing that we should be aware is changing. And I think this ties into the whole leadership. Uh, you know, there there's this. I think there's this sort of idea that we conservatives just automatically win in Alberta because it's always been that way. Yes. 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 But I think, I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's nearly as true as it used to be. And we should take note of that. We had a very left-wing mayor in Calgary and we've got another one. Um, we've had left-wing mayors in Edmonton. We have, we had Rachel Notley for four years. There, so I, so if you, I'm not sure that's the question you were asking. What's happening, Alberta? No, it I, is. It is, I, and I want to get into that because I think that's that is the key question, and actually the big reason why Take Back Alberta did what it did because it looked like Jason Kenney was crashing in the polls. I don't want to talk about Jason Kenney too much here, but what I want to talk about is the parties were united because we saw that as the problem, right? We realized. That the NDP were were much stronger, and and I would argue they're stronger now than they were in 2015. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think they could be for sure, and especially after people saw, um, 
and, and, and you know, I, I mean, and I'm a big fan of Jason Kenney. I think he's a very talented guy. I think he's, I think he's uh, probably got a bit of a bum rap here relative to the situation he found himself in, fighting COVID and so on and so forth. And and, and I don't, and I, you know, and, and 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 you know, the premier certainly knows I don't agree with a lot of the decisions he made, but that doesn't mean that I don't still have a lot of respect for him. Um, but yeah, I think that you know the performance of a conservative government, you know, during this COVID crisis. Um, has probably done some help for the NDP. And would you would you say that uh, the party seems divided to you, or would you say that uh, that's more of just a, like a, a media thing going on? What's your read on what the, on the state of the party? Like, is the party back to Wild Rose PC? Is there a new division? What's your read on like the state of the union? I mean, you study yeah. this stuff all the time. So, yeah, so I would put it in the context of what I've always said was unique about Alberta and why Conservatives always won is because we were one of the very few places that had an urban-rural coalition. And why did why was that? Because the main economic driver of Calgary, which, by the way, is half as true as it was 30 years ago, but it's still the, probably the top driver of economic activity is oil and gas in Calgary. And where do we do our work? We do our work on farms. So if you work in oil and gas, you'd better get along with farmers. And then farmers, by the same token, hey, I want to get some, I want to get those jobs. I want to have that activity. I want to have those rentals. I better get along with those people from Calgary. And th there's always been a little bit of a tension there. And, and it's interesting to go out and talk to farmers. And I'm saying, yeah, 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 you got to watch those guys from the city, you know, but uh, but they're okay if you watch them. You know, if you just, <laughs> as long as you watch them, they're okay, you know, <clears throat> but but that, but that, there was this strong economic incentive to keep this urban-rural coalition together. But we should be clear that 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 it is, you know, urban people and rural people. You see across the country that there's there's a divide. You see it in the United States too. Um, you're seeing it in Europe right now. So the the and then getting back to my initial comment, look at the look at the immigration, the net migration into Calgary. Well, not, these people are not coming into oil and gas. They don't. They don't spend time with farmers. They're not under. You know, they're not understanding why we should care about what rural people care about. So, I would say that that urban-rural coalition is shakier than it was 20, 30 years ago, for the same demographic reasons I started with. But we should also understand, you know, that strong um, conservative vote that you could rely on decade after decade. Um, you know, it, it's it's changing and it's based on a successful rural urban coalition. It's a really good uh, take on it, because I think a lot of pundits would say, oh, it's just a, uh, you know, it's a Wild Rose PC more, you know, or the convoy versus the establishment. But I really agree with you. The, the divide between the rural and urban just seems to be getting worse and worse in this country. And it's caused the, the Conservative Party of Canada a lot of grief that you've worked a lot on. Do you want to mention that, what you've seen on, just on the federal level as well as the Alberta level on the divide? Yeah. <clears throat> well, we, I mean, if you want to, if you want, you know, people with conservative principles and ideals, which of course, you know, I just think make common sense, but let, let, you know, let's be clear, people, people who have liberal views, they've, they've got some points, you know, every now and then they got a point, right? But we should be respectful of people with different views is what I'm trying to say there in a, in a sort of lighthearted way. Uh, yeah, to, to win, to win uh, federally, we need to pull in suburban votes, people who have many of the same issues of rural people. Like I have to make a living, I have to pay a mortgage, I have to run my, you know, maybe I'm running a business or maybe, you know, they, but I'm I'm dealing with the practicalities of day-to-day -day life. And, and I just want a government that either gets out of my way or helps me. And, and I don't, I don't want so to, so I think that's who we have to pull in. And I think these people in suburban, suburban places in, in the big cities, uh, you know, have, at least in the last 10 years, have moved away, uh, or I guess since 2015, they moved moved away. But but uh, but I think at the end of the day, those those people who have those practical day-to-day -day concerns about living their lives are very persuadable to do whatever is going to make their life better. And they just have to decide. We, we have to, you know, people have to present a, 
present an option that says, hey, I'm, you know, we're here with these principles and it's going to make your life better. And by the way, we're not going to take away your health care and we're not going to take away your social programs and we're not going to take away, you know, and we're not going to take away your your hard fought for uh, women's rights. I mean, these are these are things that I think that the Liberals have done a very good job of saying, oh, well, those are scary people. They're going to steal your rights away from you. But I, I think I think that's ridiculous. But but I know that uh, they've been successfully at labeling us that way. Absolutely. So you've done a lot of campaigning. You've done a lot of public research. You've I've helped you do some of that. You've you've seen a lot of things. Um, what do you think the state of the Canadian of Canadian democracy is right now? Well, I think I think one thing we should realize that these things all come in waves and that at any point in time in society, you know, there's there's going to it's hard to not always have somebody who's left out. Right. And and so I just want to go back and sort of in terms of political history, political sociology, I, I really believe in this right left, like each generation reacts to the generation before. And so you tend to have these waves that come every 50 years or every two generations and I think we're in one right now, but I'll just tell you what I mean. So in the 1910s, so the 1910s, 1960s, 2010s, 50, 50, 50, two generations to the, in, in gaps. So in the 1910s, what was the big concern? It was workers' rights. Right. And, and you know, what, what's, what's disconcerting is that, of course, you know, socialists co-opted a genuine issue which was that workers were not being treated very well. There's, there was a big societal change where rural people had moved to urban cities and, and had improved their lives. But then, you know, business owners were taking advantage of a lack of, uh, you know, a lack of good employment law and so on and so forth to, to, to keep these people down, right? Um, and, 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 and I don't think there's anybody that looks at the history today that doesn't realize, hey, you know what, that wasn't right. Sending children into coal mines, that wasn't right. Um, sending workers into unsafe conditions, that wasn't right. Like, so, so you know, I, I think there was a mistake at the time that the establishment class basically told the workers to get back in their place. And at the end of the day, there was a revolution, literally revolutions in some, many countries. And socialists managed to co-opt that movement to tell them that the solution to their problem was socialism. That killed even more people. So there's, but there's an example of what I mean. So here, fast forward 1960s, what's the big issue? It's equal rights. Well, who today doesn't think that, you know, black people sitting in the back of the bus didn't make sense? The, who today doesn't believe that First Nations shouldn't have the vote? Which they didn't get in Canada until 1960. Like, who doesn't believe that that was that was a real issue, right? But once again, you know, there was a certain you know group of elitist people in certain places that said, no, um, you know, women stay in your place, uh, race, you know, race, you know, different minorities stay in your place, and so of course there was a there was a you know what they called in Quebec the Quiet Revolution was you know I think a social revolution we called it. It wasn't so quiet, and it often became violent, but. But, and again, socialists co-opted it, right? To say, hey, we can help you get your equal rights. Okay, so what do I think now to your question, what's happening today? Well, we've got this issue about global environment, population growing, people not really understanding how, you know, how, how can we put, you know, how can I put two cases of water bottles into the landfill every day when everybody else is doing the same thing? How can we all drive an SUV? It's gonna be 10 billion people, all those people in China wanna drive one too. How is this all? There's a lot of banks. How is this all going to work? And and the other thing is, at the same time, we you know we reacted to the 1960s with the Reagan Thatcherism of global free trade. So we got two sort of big things at play: the global environment, which people have a lot of angst about, and the idea that we should have. Uh, open global trade. The problem with that, of course, is we focus on consumerism, right? Consumption, consumption and growth. What that meant is we made people here compete with foreign labor. There's a whole class left behind, right? So, so I think what we've got in society right now, we've got another class war and we're going to, and, and you'll say, oh, it's all caused by the internet. Well, trust me, the social revolution in the 1960s, there was a lot of polarization. There was no internet. 
And the 1910s, right. there was a lot of violence. There was a revolution in France in the 1700s. There, there was no internet. Like polarization happens because of classes not feeling they're being treated fairly, and ultimately will, you know, if, the, if they're not, if they're not, their issues aren't taken into account, they will, they will in some form or another rebel. So that's what I think is happening right now. Polarized society. We have uh, our, we, we've, we've let our own working class be left behind for too long. And they are unhappy. And then we've got sort of some global elites who are very happy. They want to keep buying their cheap TVs from China. They want to keep buying their cheap T-shirts. They want to tell all these working people, get back in your place. Ironically, it's the opposite people telling them to get back in their place. It's not the capitalists anymore, right? It's the urban elites. But get back in your place. And and if you don't like it, well, then get get an education and become a global elite yourself, you know? Um, so I think that's not going to last eventually that somebody has to win on that. And the other thing is eventually we have to have a solution for people on the angst on the environment. And I think there's going to be polarization until somebody wins this class war. What does victory in the class war look like? Well, I tell you, I'm, I mean, there's a, the, the difference between an elite and an elitist. It's pretty hard for me not to say, I mean, I grew up in a very poor neighborhood and in, in, and so I always, I always wonder how, how did I become privileged because it wasn't always so easy for me growing up. But, but nonetheless, I, you know, I, I managed to get an education. We had a great system in Canada that made getting university educations relatively cheap and easy with loans and so on and so forth. Um, so I guess I, you know, I certainly become somebody who would be a one percenter and in that sense an elite. But I, I, I'm far from an elitist. I mean, I, I come from blue collar roots and, 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 and homesteading homesteading great grandparents and i have a lot of time for rural people farmers small business people working blue collar people and so i'm on their side like we we have to take better care of our workers and if that means we have to pay a little more for a t-shirt then we should pay more for a t-shirt that's my view right i agree 100 yeah yes there has to be a limit to this of course we can't we can't go back to what we had and you know what the result that came out of the 60s where unionized workers were holding us all to ransom and and producing crappy cars right like we can't have that either so there has to be a balance sought but definitely i'm on the side of of uh that we need to treat our own people better stephen harper does such a good job of this in his book talking about the somewheres and anywheres that there's this battle between somewheres and anywheres and that we should move to this idea of reform conservatism I'm not sure he uses that term, but it's what he means. And it basically says we should focus on production and jobs, not consumption and growth. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this, of course, is what the Asians have done. Yes. Yes. And this, is, and this is why they don't have unrestricted free trade. Right. We have some provinces in Canada that don't have unrestricted free trade, like, like Quebec, who's been blocking pipelines, blocking LNG plants and expropriating my, you know, companies like mine. Um, yes. Yes. Right. So I think we need to understand this idea of the Reagan Thatcher's idea of that free trade is always makes things better is not true because it might always make things cheaper. But if it leaves your own people behind the somewheres versus anywheres, then it's creating a social class problem. Well, I couldn't agree with you more because we've seen this. And, and it's become that Trumpian populism that we saw in America, I think, uh, was the people that were left behind. And then Trump came along and said, hey, you've been left behind and that's not right. And that's why he did so well, I think. Yeah. Now, well, that's, and, and, and also for him to recognize how many people that is in our society. Like, like we're not taught. I, I think I think some of these people in downtown Toronto think, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's maybe 20 people out in Alberta that got left behind. No, it's like half of our society. Yes. Yes. So on that note, I think that's a really good segue into Alberta, right? Alberta doesn't just feel left behind like by globalism. We feel rejected by our own nation and we can't even produce our own resources anymore uh, and get them to market without Ottawa interfering. You've started an organization called the Modern Miracle Network. We talked about that in the first episode. I just want to talk about what you are seeing the future of Alberta's oil and gas industry as and what role that plays in the politics that are kind of boiling under the surface of, of Alberta. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, to me, this what more and more, I mean, I, I came out of a finance, finance training, accounting training, business training. So, 
you know, I was always in that world of, you know, like where conservatives love to live and the rational, this is, that, that's all be real world. This is the way it is. You know, let's, you know, stop being a bunch of bleeding hearts. Like, you know, the world's a tough place. And this is of course why a lot of liberals don't like us. Cause they don't, you know, they, you know, what you guys all sound so mean, you know? Um, but I've now realized that it, it turns out the soft sciences are the most important sciences. And I'll just put this into a context, right? With what's the most important thing to anybody? Right. It's it's I want to be happy. It's who do I love? Who do I trust? Who trusts me? Who loves me? Well, there's not a single economics or math textbooks that can answer these kinds of questions. These these are the most important questions. I mean, that's always why they said, look, religion may not have may, may, may not have answers to the big problems, but to the problems. But at least they're working on the big problems. Right. 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 <laughs> yep, yep. The hard the hard sciences are all working on the small problems and doing very well at it. So I guess I'll come back to, you know, your question, Alberta, to me, it comes back to the culture again. And within Canada, what I, and I've spent a lot of time in Quebec, and I learned a lot, a lot about the way people think there and, and, and in other countries, you know, and the way the way people think in Quebec is actually closer to the way most people in the world think we're at we're you know while we might be the majority in Canada we're probably a minority in the world same thing with First Nations by the way First Nations have a cultural thinking that's more like most societies in the world as opposed to ours where we're kind of in this very successful but minority right so what I look at say Alberta in particular we have um, what I call like a mercantile culture so this is what Napoleon referred to the British as being a nation of shopkeepers Yep. Alberta's, yep. we're kind of like a province of shopkeepers. Like all we really want to do is get back to running our shop, whether it's our farm, whether it's our business, whether it's our job, whether it's our, you know, our life trying to raise our kids. We just want to get back to our business and we want the government to leave us alone. And, and we want to be, we want, you know, relatively open markets to just get back to running our shops. Ontario is not, is more about political, but for sure, Quebec and the maritime provinces, these are very political cultures. So, so here's, so what we need to understand, if, if you're, if you're, if you're a political culture, you don't mind losing a little GDP for political power. You know what I mean? Like, and for an Alberta say, what do you, what do you mean? Like we would lose a little GDP. What for? Like what is political power? What would we do with it anyways? We just want to get back to running our shops. So you have this sort of, you see people from Alberta all the time. I talk to them all the time. All They're all around me here. You know, well, I'm in Lake Country now, but in my home in Calgary, who are all saying, well, we just need to go explain to the people in Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal about how this is good for the economy. But they're not nations of shopkeepers. Right. <laughs> right. So why would they, they're not just trying to get back to their shops. They're trying to maintain political power. And and of course, you know, what's the big source of power? It's like it's guns, armies, whatever. It, it's 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 votes, it's the it's the mob, it's the population, it's the it's it's elections, or it's money. And you know, we saw before the Dutch invented capitalism with the invention of the company, right? The in 1600-ish, that before that it was the people with the guns, like the the nobles, the the kings, the princes that all had armies. They were the rich people because they had the most power. They had the guns. Well, post capitalism, it's not the people with the guns. It's not the people with the votes. It's the people with the money. People in Ontario and Quebec understand. Well, Alberta gets too much money. They're getting too much power. And then we're so we go to them and say, you are you're you know. So if you can imagine this sort of funny conversation that happens. People from Alberta go, we just need to go explain to them how us making more money means they get to make more money. And all that person down in Ottawa hears is, oh, my gosh, they've got so much power because they've got so much money. And they come down here explaining how they're going to get even more. Well, how is that? How, how is that not even a worse thing? So we it's it's a there's a cultural problem between Alberta and the rest of the country. And and, I, and people always want to divide it down to money. It's because they take our money. I I actually would be more than happy to send 10, 20 billion a year to the rest of the country. Just leave us alone and let us get back to our shops. The problem for me has been we do send 20 billion a year. It, for, for decades, it bought political peace. It kept them out of our politics. And now they're coming, now they're taking the money and interfering in our politics and making it that we can't run our shops. So to me, it's, the, it's not the 20 billion. We talk about that, but it's actually the fact 
You're coming in and making it that we can't run our shops anymore. You won't let us transport our products anymore. You're, you're putting taxes on us to make our businesses um, un, unviable. Like you're, you're getting in the way of us running our shops. So I think that's that political, the political move they're making, which is all around keeping us from gaining political power, which we don't even really want. We just want the, if we had the political power, we'd use it to not interfere, right? Yes, yes. But they don't, but they don't get that about us. If you're from there, they they you know they, you know if you're if you come out of a political centered culture, you can't understand somebody saying, "Well, if I had political power, I wouldn't use it." They're going, "Well, what kind of person would do that?" Nobody, right? So they don't believe us. They don't. Believe, so that there's that. Anyways, you know what I mean. We're all speaking English, but we're talking different languages. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, I would say that fundamentally, the demographics of Alberta being very young, um, being very mercantile and economically focused, has now reached a bit of a crisis level, in particular with this ideological, power-oriented government, that, that it's a culture problem for us in Canada right now. And that we talk about it in the terms of the money, but it's actually a culture problem. Just like Quebec was looking to separate based on culture, I think Alberta separation is growing because of this cultural issue. Very related to money, but it's this not is, the money. I don't know. I don't know what you think, Zach, but uh, no one has. A lot of people have come on to talk about this. Nobody said that, and I love it. That is no one. We we've talked lots about the flow of money, but nothing about why on a communication level, things are breaking down between Ottawa and uh, Alberta. And that's incredibly fascinating to think about, just the two the two different ways of approaching the problem and why communication isn't happening because it's two different ways of looking at the situation. That's, that's a new piece that we haven't had yet before. Absolutely. Yeah, trust me, it's not about the 20 billion. We can afford it. He might not like it, you know what, but I don't like that, you know, I don't like that. I don't like a lot of things in my life that are too expensive, but um, that's, that's not, that's not underneath. This is this whole, we just want to live our lives and run get back to running our shops and by running our shops just might be, I just want to get back to work, make some money, take my kids to hockey. I just want to run my life and I want to be left alone. Um, and by the way, I think this is true. Like there are people like this everywhere in the country. I mean, you, you, you know, you see, um, you know, there's like people in the suburbs of Toronto where it's just like, let me get back to running my life too. But I would just say from a dominant, dominant culture point of view, and I'll that, that's single out Quebec because it's so, so much more obvious there is that, you know, it's all about the politics and, and less about, less about, like, do we think Quebec doesn't have amazing resources? Mining, forestry, hydro. I mean, they've got amazing, I mean, look at the size of the province. I mean, it's got so much, we've got so much resources there. And now, of course, we discovered major gas there. Like, do we not think that Quebecers could be rich if they would just go and run their shops? <laughs> uh, run your shop run your own shop that's the title of this episode right there run your own shop okay but, but of course just to finish that if you're a quebecer feeling like you're a persecuted minority in this sea of english political power turns out to be more important to protect yourself than making that extra bit of gdp right yes okay so we've set the table here in an amazing way and i'm very appreciative of that you've I think you've done an incredible job of explaining the problem. How does Alberta get out of this mess where we're suddenly have a bunch of political power hungry people making it so we can't run our shops? Well, here's, here's what I say. And this is a bit of a paradox. Like if the strength of Alberta is that, like, and here's what I think the two strengths, like I would say Alberta is a state of mind. I mean, you, you can be here for six generations, like my family and some of my family still doesn't get it. Or you can be here for six months and completely get it. Like, and, and the reason for that is that, and I'll just, I don't, I don't want to, I mean, I have a reason to single out Quebec. They're, they're screwing me over in my business deal right now, but, but, but I'll, but I'll use them as because they're a good example of, 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 you know, a, 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 to illustrate the difference, the difference on that. So, so if you're in Quebec, you've got a shared culture based on a shared history of 400 years and a shared language and so on and so forth. And so it's all around, I, we, we have a shared identity based on this shared history. Well, in Alberta, like I literally heard the history of Alberta from my great grandmother's lips to my ears. 
We we have so little history. That's I I could hear it in person. You can't do that in Quebec, obviously. It's 400 years ago. So we have a shared identity in Alberta based on a shared future. That, that's why you can come here, only be here for six months, and be every much as part of Alberta's future as somebody who's been here for six generations. That's a real amazing strength of our culture. The other, the other, the other thing that you know is is uh, I think the that that mercantile you know, just that you can be free to run your shop and you can, and as long as you're sharing our future, you can be part of our province. So that's why I say it's a state of mind, right? And, and I, and I think where we're at in Alberta is it's this apolitical nature that that creates with no history, no this to in a shared future means that we just can't understand the politics of the country. And we want to keep going to explain to them why you should let us make more money and have more power. And they, so, what, so here's the paradox. Our very strength of being apolitical, we need to learn to be good at being, being political. We're not going to win this political battle in Canada by getting better at running our shops. Right? <laughs> yes. Uh, you're on fire today. This is great. Okay. So how do we how do we get to how do we get to be political? Yeah. Well, mm. first of all, I think we have to start having a whole bunch of conversations with Albertans for them to understand that while getting political is going to be sort of a step backwards for us, it's the only way to move forward in the country or it's the, and the other thing is you will never gain autonomy without a political battle. Right? It's a, like like the idea of a t- taking taking power and taking power into our own hands or having more autonomy for Alberta, this is inherently a political act, which means you have to do something political, right? Which, so this is, this. I think it's going to be, a, I, I, I think the whole idea of Alberta autonomy is a whole bunch of explaining to Albertans, our culture really is different. They're not the same as us because they think first, in terms of political issues, we think first in terms of mercantile issues. Therefore, paradoxically, we have to get good at what they're good at so that we can keep their politics out of our politics. Well, yeah, it's wow. like two different card games. It's like if, you know, I'm playing Euchre and I'm, I'm Euchre is politics and you're playing Uno and you're really good at Uno, Uno you're still not going to win at Euchre, right? <laughs> and then what, that's it. And that's the problem is we have to get good at their game to keep them out of our game. Yeah. I so love that, what you said. That, I want to go back a little bit, but I love what you said about saying it's going backwards for us because everybody in Alberta is like, I don't want to care about politics. That's it. And actually, I think that's the problem in Alberta. Right. I think the reason the Conservative Party has been in such disarray, whether it's the PC Party, the Wild Rose Party, the UCP, whatever, you, or even the Wild Rose Independence Party, look at how much disarray they have, is that yeah. we don't, Albertans don't want to get good at politics. They hate no, it. No. Yep, that's right. So, so there, so there's the paradox for us, right? As a as a province, um, and 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 by the way, you know, you could, you, you know, it may, maybe w- would be palatable to the average Albertan, which is just saying, listen, I don't want to have to think a lot about politics. I just want to run my farm. I just want to run my life, right? Then maybe what we need to do is to find a government of people who can be good at it for us and then support yeah. them, right? If we yeah. could, but then we have, but at a very minimum, we need to realize that we, we have to elect some people in Alberta that are going to be able to go head to head with relatively Machiavellian, ruthless political actors in Ottawa who all talk nicely. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, the art of seduction and, and uh, charming is 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 always is always at the forefront when you're in Quebec. I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to. You know, everybody's charming there, right? But they're but they're always thinking about politics. Okay, so now that we've set the stage here, we have a big political question coming up, right in Alberta, but which is, I think, are we going to go down the path of socialism, or are we going to go down the path of free enterprise? Right. And Alberta consistently for the last five decades, let's say, besides the blip in 2015, has chosen the path of 
free enterprise or at a crossroads. And one of the most important questions on that crossroad is actually also independence. What does independence look like for Alberta? And there's a lot of arguments going on, right? We have Travis Tate's team saying, yes, we need more autonomy, but we need to be strategic. We have Brian Jean's team saying we need to reopen the negotiation of the Constitution, right? We have um, we have Daniel Smith's team saying we need a, basically a, uh, a sovereignty act, but a, a kind of declaration of independence that Alberta is going to chart its own course forward. You have spent more time thinking about this than almost anyone. I would say you're probably the foremost expert on it. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, but since you're the foremost expert on it, you care the most about this of anyone I know in terms of getting into the details. Yeah. What are the details of what, what is going on with the sovereignty movement and how is it shaping itself around those three candidates, different perspectives, let's call it. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you didn't mention Schultz. Schultz has a, uh, I think a really sorry, great. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, yeah. Um, uh, yes. She has a great, I think she's put out a really great hundred uh, day action plan on autonomy too. Um, okay. A couple things. So first of all, isn't it great that uh, four leading candidates and, and I don't mean to be discouraging of Lowen or uh, here or, or Swanee, because I think they they all in certain ways have talked about that autonomy is important to to lesser or greater degrees, uh, but but for sure the top candidates on this issue there's there's not a single one of them that doesn't understand that uh, standing up standing up for Alberta is not a top issue, and so isn't it great there's agreement on that, and so we're now into the situation well. Who am I going to pick, especially if I don't want to personally have to care much about politics? Who do I pick to be a leader who will care for me? Um, we've got some choices. And, and, and there's not one of them who's saying, oh, don't be silly. Like, they all get it. You're right. This is an important issue. So I, I think that Alberta voters need to look at those, you know, those options and plans. I think they have to look and say, who do they think is the person who has the fortitude you know that that who's that person that can go into a room with 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 Gerald Butts, right? Who's that person that can go into a room with with Legault, right? And 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 not walk out all charmed and 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 uh, and and you know bamboozled, right? That is smart and tough and can go toe to toe with those people and also has a plan, right? So I think there's both a character issue and a plan issue here. And I think Albertans need to look at that. I, I also think it's really important for us to understand that there are no simple solutions to complex problems. Yes. So let's not let's just say, oh, we'll just we'll just have a referendum and it'll fix everything. That like this this kind of thinking is I, I, seductive. Oh, we'll just have a referendum. That'll be the end of this problem, and I can go back to running my shop. Like that's not going to happen either. So let's stop looking at simple solutions to complex problems. And then I think the final one is understand. What we're talking about are inherently, inherently political acts that then need to be put into the con. They need to be put into the context of the law. Why? Because no political act is going to be accepted by the population as a whole or by the international community unless it is it, unless it's within the context of law, right? And law can change. Law can be pushed. It doesn't have to actually be like, I'm not, I'm not saying laws can't be changed and things can't be in the context of the law, but we need to realize there will be no acceptance from international trading partners of an inherently illegal act. There'll be, there won't be general acceptance within the Alberta population of an inherently illegal act. So I think we have to then say, let's do something lawfully. Um, I think all four candidates have got, or all seven candidates. I mean, I think every one of them is at least on the right point to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, but I do think it's an important choice. I guess get back to who's got the character, who's got the plan. Um, I'm, I'm personally, if I just go into what I personally think, absolutely. Yeah, what I think is that we should be following something what I call responsible government this is a big this is a defined term big r big g so uh, you know we all get taught in grade 10 social studies that canada you know became independent in 1867 well that's just simply not true right we we uh we didn't even have we didn't get the constitution back from london until 1982 like so the 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 canadian constitution unlike america 
There was no Big Bang. It was an evolution that happened from literally 1763, the Treaty of Paris became, you know, the, the Quebec Act. Uh, I don't think I have the name of that exactly right, but it was 1763. It was, it was already amended in 1774, right? And, and then, I mean, there was major amendments made after the rebellions in, in 1838. And of course, 1867 was important, but it was really, 1867 was mostly just a merger of four colonies. There was no major constitutional change, but other than that merger, uh, the, the, the nine, I think it's 1930, 1931 was when London finally said that colonial law supersedes London, English law. Conrad Black says Canada didn't truly become independent until that act, because until then, British law was over top of our law. 82 is obviously important. It brought the Constitution. But the Quebec Succession Act which is led to the Clarity Act, that's another major change to our constitution that says there is a path to secede from Canada, which there isn't in the United States, by the way, right? They'll, they'll, they'll have a war if you try. Uh, Texas, but in Canada, we don't have that. And I think it's because we have, by the way, that entire process leading up to 1867 was the colonials saying, we need to demonstrate responsible government so that London will allow us to have more local autonomy. So what, what I, my view is that we should just continue 250 years of tradition and that Alberta should demonstrate responsible government, big R, big G. If we just res demonstrate responsible government and then learn to exercise political power, which I believe Alberta has a lot of because we generate a lot of wealth, which does give you political power if you choose to use it, the combination of responsible government and political using our, using the power we have can lead to much more autonomy. And if necessary, and I always say like autonomy if necessary, but not necessarily autonomy, um, is that, you know, if necessary leads to full autonomy. But that'll all depend on what the rest of the country does when they start to see us, A, showing responsible government, and B, so something that they can respect, right? Look at those people. They, they're managing their own pension money like Quebec does. They're managing, they're able to police themselves. They're able to collect revenues and, do, and administer taxes themselves. Those people are grown up. They're like Ontario and Quebec. They can manage themselves now. So there's the responsible government element. And then the next part is to say, oh, and look at them. They're also exercising political power. Right. Right. They, they, they're grownups. And so I guess we better get some respect for those people. And if they don't show some respect for us after we give reason to be respected, then I think it could lead to potential full autonomy, right? I, anyways, like for, for, so for my view, my view is that we stay within, we stay within our parliamentary democracy tradition that was successful in making Ottawa independent of London over a period of time. We follow the we follow the same path under the same common law under the same constitutional traditions, and we become autonomous by making taking political acts, all the while showing responsible government. I I love that. Okay, so we're nearing the end here. Um, APP, uh, they're they're having big events. They're uh, we had Dr. Modri on here. He talked about APP's vision. Uh, I, I know that you appreciate that people are going out and educating on what Alberta's place is in Confederation, but um, how, could, uh, how could that mission, like why is that mission unlikely to succeed? I'll explain why I'm not a member of APP right now. And that's because I don't think Albertans wanna leave Canada. Right. And I think if we have a referendum, we'll lose. Right, yeah. right now. Well, I think we also understand, have to understand. I mean, I, I, I love Dennis Motor. He's got such passion, and uh, and he's and he's he's he like like all those leadership choices. They, their 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 sentiment is in the right place. You know, which of them has the best? Some some of them have better plans than others on how to exercise this power, right? And so I think voters have to look at it and say, who do I think has the right plan, the responsible plan that fits into responsible government and that can help us do this? But they're all in the right place. I mean, you, you can, to me, you can't hate any of them. And I and I say the same about Dennis Modry. He's 
super passionate. He's educated himself well on some of the inherent injustices that are happening for Alberta. By the way, I mean, I talk about hearing Alberta's history from my great grandmother. I mean, the crows, the crows rate was, was like the, the, the injustices to Alberta started at the beginning. They, they wouldn't give us our resources in 1905. I mean, the, I don't like my, 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 Grandfather's my grandfather was in the was in the um the, the military police and the in the in the air force and and there was a lot of inherent unfairness in the way the draft was was um the draft was done in World War II. I mean, there's all to Alberta, right? There's all kinds of these injustices over many years. It's not just recently. But Dennis is well educated himself. Here's what I would here's what I would say that the the one thing wrong there is autonomy is a political act where a referendum gives it the the a referendum will give that act the um a, a lawful make it lawful but the referendum is not the act right the act right. is the act is taking power the referendum is what gives it the legitimacy of law which is now which which is not just international law you know, self-determination, that's in We now have Canadian law after the Quebec succession re uh, reference. We now have Canadian law that gives, that will give legitimacy through a referendum. But I think the problem I find with a lot of people like Dennis Modry's group is that they think the referendum is the act. The act is taking power. The referendum is what gives it legitimacy. And that's what they're missing. So we need to, we need to get ourselves ready to take the political act and, and we don't have, as you said, we don't have to go all there in one way, in one in one step. We can we can take power and show responsible government step by step. And then, if the rest of the country recognizes that, hey, they're they're acting responsibly and they're exercising their power well, then we'll end up with a negotiated. A settlement just just like Canada had with London, right? There was no war to get Canada to Ottawa to separate from London. There doesn't necessarily need to be a war to get Edmonton separate from Ottawa. We can follow that process. Anyway, so, so that so there's my fundamental thing is that they're just not understanding that again, they're looking for a simple solution to a complex problem. Uh, the referendum is 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 a nothing more than a symbol of legitimacy to the act you're trying to take. That's a great summary. Um, five more minutes. Give us your thoughts on what an independent Alberta could look like. Because you've talked, you and I've talked on the phone about this. I think too often <laughs> we talk about the act of separating and not not enough the act of building something new. Right. Okay. So I mean, what I think has just been so crazy, and it just shows the mentality of Albertans. Who I think you know, as many people have shown, we've been very loyal Canadians, including including putting up with the, some of the things that happened in World War II in the draft. Um, we could be the richest country overnight, the richest nation. The, and and I just look at the Norway example, right? Like we Norway, we have more oil and gas than Norway, and we have fewer people. Like literally overnight, if we took the political, we're able, I don't think we're in a position. I don't think we are in a position to, to govern ourselves yet. But but let's say we were, and let's say we did, we would be the richest nation overnight. And the other thing, so I look and say, well, why wouldn't, like, I said, why are we spending so much time trying to convince the rest of Canada to not be the richest place? Like why aren't they? Why aren't they? Why aren't they coming to us and saying, "Please don't leave," because we, well, you know, like why? Why it's, it, this is upside down somehow, right? But I think it's because you know people feel loyal to being towards being Canadians, and if the rest of Canada would treat us well, I think we would go on continuing to contribute to the rest of Canada, right? So, so there's one point: we could be the richest, you know, we could be the richest nation overnight. The other thing that I think is really important for us to understand is the biggest mistake people make in a lot of negotiations is worrying about their own weaknesses. So all I ever, oh, well, we couldn't do that. We, we, somehow we wouldn't be know how to manage our pension. We'd lose all that $400 billion that Ottawa manages for us. Uh, we would be landlocked. We wouldn't, it would be even worse to get our oil out. I'm going, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not thinking about this right. You need to think about the weaknesses of the other person. Don't think about your own, think about theirs, right? In a in a in a in a in a um, 
you know, a sovereign or autonomous, more autonomous Alberta, but like autonomous more in the way Switzerland or Norway are very much integrated with the European Union, like not, not, not fully independent, really, but an integrated, like, in, like a, like a, a nation within a nation type idea, right? Uh, the rest of Canada, like, how do they run their economy without our oil and gas? Like, how do they run our economy if we, like, people don't, Alberta runs massive trade deficits with Ontario and Quebec and the rest of the country, right? And, and we generate most of the foreign exchange. Like, so, I mean, I just, by the way, they, like, how, how do you get a Toyota from, from Vancouver to Toronto if you don't go through Alberta? Like this, this, this is, and, and by the way, suddenly Alberta would have rights to retaliate. We could put tariffs on goods. We could block things traveling through, uh, through the province. We could block planes from flying over top of us. It's it, this, this is why countries like Austria and Switzerland who are landlocked countries do just fine. Right. Because it turns out the European union wants them to be integrated. Right. Yeah. So, so and 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 given that given Alberta's position as an oil as a as a petro power right like like Norway or other Saudi Arabia even we would have a lot of power right we'd have a yeah. lot of power, right so so I mean I'm not saying that we don't have we wouldn't have some weaknesses but let's not go into this let's not go into this on the basis that we have weaknesses and they don't. They got more, they got they got more weaknesses than we do, and there's every reason that we would expect, just like we've seen in Europe, that people would make agreements. Like 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 Britain is still trading with Britain. Left the EU, is the EU not still trading with Britain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and of course, Britain is not. You know, it's not independent in energy anymore. You're seeing that they've got major problems there right now with uh, the shortage of gas. And so I, anyways, I, I think the, I guess that's, you know, the two things I would say is one is to understand it's a political act where the law gives you legitimacy in the international community. And then second of all, to understand we have a lot of power. We just have to learn to use it. And the rest of Canada will have weaknesses too, not just us. Incredible conversation. Zach, do you have any last questions before we go? Yeah, I have two. And I'm going to ask them separately because they're kind of unrelated. Um, you spoke about uh, how Alberta needs someone, one, with a plan, and two, with enough fortitude to stand up to the Machiavellian tongue in Ottawa. Um, is, there, is there an individual or a couple individuals that you would get behind in this leadership in race in Alberta right now to do the job? Yeah, well, there's one of the minds that uh, I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation. That, that and if, if, you, if you don't, up. if you don't feel comfortable answering the question, that's fine. But I'm curious to know your take. Yeah, I okay. So I, I you know, I, I, you know, I, I think there's different. Here's what I would say: every one of those four leading candidates, and I, and I'd like to put Rebecca Schultz among them, even though I know she's a bit further behind, just because I think she's running a really great campaign. Um, I think they all. I, I think. You know, they're all uh, people that I know. I think they're all people with, you know, pluses and minuses. You know, like if you ask my wife, she'll even say that I have some minuses, which is I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I so I I at the end of the day, I think far more important what I what I decided in the end far more important is to help work with whoever wins to make sure that we do have you know, that person, whoever it is, whether, whether that they are do as well as they possibly can in that position. And that we, you know, we continue to pick free enterprise over socialism. So I, so that, I guess that's where I've, I've decided to sit down and also modern miracle is a group. I'm also chairman of the Canada strong and free. And so both of those groups have uh, internal policies it doesn't stop me from personally taking a position, but it's, as an organization, we don't. So, so, I, so that's a long way of saying I'm not answering. Congratulations <laughs> like on con, congratulations on successfully stepping over the mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so one other question, and I, I think I meant to ask you this last time you were on the show, um, and I just didn't get to it. As someone, this is something. This is something as a Canadian, I've I've wondered for years now. As someone who has a background. Uh, and really has dedicated a lot of his life to to oil and gas. 
Why is it that we as a country do not have a pipeline from the West to the East that does not cross an international border? I just yeah. can't fathom why okay, so we there, wouldn't so have yeah, that. So the, yeah, so the important history to understand there is the international demand and supply up and until the shale gas revolution. So up and until then, the heartland of the United States used way more oil than it, than it produced. And so the entire North American pipeline network was developed to take um, a, a, a internal oil sort of in, inside Canada to and like it's inside North America to inside North America. So the cheapest, the cheapest and most direct and most efficient thing to do all the way up and until 2000 was for Alberta oil to be shipped to United States where they were short oil. So my whole career, uh, West Texas traded at a discount to Brent because, um, or at a premium to Brent. I mean, West Texas was always a premium to Brent because the international oil had to go to a ship to a port and then get to a port inside the continent. Then after the shale gas revolution happened, so, so at that point in time, um, you know, people in, in Quebec were going, why would we buy your expensive oil in Alberta that people in Illinois are willing to pay a high price for because they, they, they have to ship it from somewhere? We want the cheap oil from Saudi Arabia or whatever. Like the, Quebec doesn't import from Saudi Arabia now, but they did then. And we want that cheap oil from there. We don't want your expensive oil in Alberta. So that's so the pipeline network was all from where, you know, where was the highest paying market for Canadian oil? Then shale gas happened and all of a sudden the Balkan exploded and now the interior of the United States is producing more oil than it uses. And now West Texas starts trading at a discount. And now all of a sudden Alberta's going, hey, just a second, we're selling into this discount market. It used to be a premium market. Now it's a discount market. How do we get our oil to the premium market, which suddenly became the international market? And that's when we went to say, well, we need to build pipelines. And we're shocked to find that the rest of the country wouldn't let us, right? But that, but the need, but the the international market need for those pipelines didn't happen until two thousand, okay, two thousand five, and then and then what we found, of course, was no, we won't let you build, uh, we won't let you expand TMX, we won't let you build the Gateway, we won't let you build Energy East, we won't let, you, I mean, even even in the United States, it's the same thing, right? Like. All of our oil goes easily to Chicago. It's harder to get it all the way to the Gulf refineries. So you got a Democratic state and a Republican state. Well, big surprise that when there's a Democrat president, they're blocking pipelines that would let you get oil to a Republican state. And when there's a Republican right. government, they're saying, oh, no, we do need the pipeline to get the oil to the Republican state. Like right. even that's right. So, they, you know, of course, you know, the Chicago refineries are happy to buy our oil cheap if they can. Right. Mm. Anyway, so but there's but there's the answer. The pipeline network was set up logically when it was built, and then when the logic changed, the politics wouldn't let us change the pipeline system. That's so a great why, answer. why why are the politics that way? Why is it that Ottawa can't look at the situation and go, "Wow, there's a lot of opportunity to make money here. Money is good for us. Let's do that." When we Stephen when we had Stephen Harper as a prime minister, I think he was. I think he tried really hard to talk about us as an energy superpower and why we need to build this infrastructure. And, and, and I have to tell you, if you as a Canadian are thinking strategically about our position in the world, then there, then it's, you, you, you wouldn't be thinking for a second that we need to build this infrastructure. You would only be thinking about how it can be done in the best possible way. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You, it, it makes me feel like our country doesn't take itself seriously. You know, well, I'll get back to. I think what you'll find is that there are people in power in Ottawa now who are very political in nature. They're willing to give up a bit of Canadian GDP to maintain their political power. That's their culture, right? That's a cultural thing. They're 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 not they're not maximizing Canada's position in the world. They're maximizing their region's position in Canada. And so it, what doesn't look logical to us as an Albertan, or maybe even to a Canadian, if you look at Canada as a whole, is logical to you if you're within your region trying to maintain power over another region. Right. right. Okay. Well, good answer. It's power, not money. 
Yeah. 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 Last week, we have to understand people who are in political cultures think of power first and money second. And normally when you have power, you can then get money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good oh, answer. Thank you. I know you're, we've gone over our time. So thank you very much, Michael. Uh, again, always great to have you and I'm looking forward to the continued conversation. Okay. Thanks for having me again. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Canadian story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the CAD story. That's the CAD story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great our country is.